According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to Matthew chapter 12 this morning as we get started. We are dealing with a healing episode in the life of Christ. It's episode 15 in the Galilean ministry, simply titled Multitudes Healed, and it's kind of a generic title. And there are several episodes that could have this title because this is typical of many events in, in the life of Christ. We started this last week and pointed out that in the, the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the accounts are remarkably different. And that's unusual. Normally with the synoptic Gospels, the, uh, the uh, information there is by and large the same. Here, though, the, uh, the accounts are different. And so we will deal with each Gospel in turn. We pointed out under point one that this episode bears more content than passing observations might allow. How the synoptic gospels are remarkably different. How uh, the particular episode they describe is likely typical. That means it wasn't just this one instance where this happened, but this was typical of multiple instances throughout the Galilean ministry. And also, finally, the principles contained in this episode establish context for subsequent episodes. I think this really helps set the stage for the calling of the Twelve, which we're going to get into very shortly. This is going to help to set the table, as we say, for the uh, Sermon on the Mount coming up, particularly as Israel is becoming more and more hostile and Gentiles are starting to get more and more positive. Uh, we're really setting the stage for the Apostle, the selection of the Twelve and the Sermon on the Mount. So we have those items coming up as well. Under point two, we dealt with Matthew's account. You can guess what points three and four are going to be. We will be looking at Mark's account. We will be looking at Luke's account. Now, under Matthew's account, we almost got through the entirety of Matthew's account. And so I want to jump right back on it this morning. But I haven't prayed yet, have I? So if we're going to overcome uh, cedar fever, I think we better start with prayer and, uh, and take it from there. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for this day and the privilege and blessing we have to assemble together. We thank you for the opportunity to meet, to study the living and abiding word. We pray that distractions might be set aside, that you would give us concentration. And Father, we ask that you not allow the teaching today to be uh, diminished or lessened in any way by any human weaknesses or limitations on the part of the speaker, on the part of the hearers. We thank you, Father, that taking in Bible doctrine is a spiritual function that uh, is dependent upon the grace ministry of the Holy Spirit teaching us, and we thank you for that as well. So, Father, we ask that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand, and we pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> I may even be this casual on Sunday if we can't get boxes unpacked. <laughs> I have suits somewhere, and there are other clothes somewhere. I just They're in a box. All right. That's assuming I live through the week, too. Please pray. This cedar season is already worse than any previous one. <coughs> All right. We noted under A and B, I think we left off with C, and I want to spend some time on that this morning. But under subpoint A, the episode begins with a withdrawal, an anacoreo. Really, it's a retreat. It's an escape. It's the fact that the hostility is building here and he needs to be elsewhere because if he doesn't depart, then harm is going to come. Now, he's not a coward and he's not running from the danger, but he's recognizing that his death is a part of the Father's plan and it will not come before the day that it's called for and it will not come in any other method than on the cross as the lamb, spotless and blameless. So 
uh, fleeing under these circumstances is legitimate and also even uh, a mark of wisdom in pursuing God's plan. We've taught the doctrine of fleeing in the past, in particular in the life of David's study. David did a lot of fleeing. Many followed and all were healed. Their healing caused them to know Jesus as the Christ. Interestingly enough, even while the Jewish opposition was increasing, and even as they were not willing to admit that he was the Christ, the Gentiles are starting to come to that conclusion themselves. Uh, and there were four subpoints under this that we dealt with last week. The context identifies this crowd as mainly Gentile. and We won't turn to Mark or Luke at, at this time, but we can see in verse 18 and verse 21 of, of this Matthew chapter that uh, the Gentiles are mentioned, or the nations are mentioned. Verse 18, he shall proclaim justice to the nations or to the Gentiles. In verse 21, in his name, the Gentiles or the nations will hope. And uh, we'll have more to say on this. It really is a interpreter's or translator's puzzle to try to determine whether the better translation should be Gentiles or nations. Because it's the same word in the Greek, it's the same word in the Hebrew. Uh, it's only in English that we find that they break them down into different words. The, the Gentile word speaking mainly of the racial difference between Gentiles and Israel. And then the nations describing more the political difference between the other nations and Israel. Mark's parallel specifically identifies Idumeans, Tyrians, and Sidonians. And I drew a map picture for you last week on that. We won't turn back there again this morning. Just as in the case of the Samaritan woman and the man of a Samaritan town, Jewish opposition is contrasted with Gentile recognition. Look how quickly these, these Gentiles are recognizing the Christ. And look how slowly or resistant the Jews are, see. Because I, th I think probably it's safe to say that the Jews had a lot of baggage with them as far as their expectations and their pride and their structures under legalism and their uh, their esteem for learned rabbis and everything else, uh, the Gentiles didn't have any of that baggage. They were just, if they were positive at the point of God consciousness and recognized that salvation was of the Jews, that uh, the Lord God, creator of heaven and earth, was indeed the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, well, then they could hear the words of a Jewish prophet and immediately say, oh, this is the Christ. So far as the Gentile uh, recognition of the seed of the woman promise, uh, as far as that goes, these Gentiles are warned to keep their testimony quiet. We'll see that again with the demons in, in Mark's account. There are demons that are testifying, and the Lord tells them to keep quiet. Here the Gentiles are being told to keep quiet. And there will be more of this coming up as the crucifixion approaches, certainly. There will be a hinge event where Jesus Christ stops uh, giving the kingdom messages and starts preparing his disciples for the cross. And uh, pretty much contemporaneous with that hinge in the life of Christ comes when he starts telling more and more people to stop spreading the news, to stop telling people who he was and so forth. This, though, is a little bit early for that, uh, but it's still similar in that he's, he's admonishing them to uh, secrecy. And, uh, and, uh, and it, it is in a, in a Gentile context that this takes place. He warned them not to tell who he was. See, and specifically, the warning was not identifying him by name, as it were. And, you know, they can still talk to their other Gentiles and lead them to Christ and tell them about salvation, and all of that, certainly. But for this episode where he has fled from Capernaum, he is trying to keep his presence and his uh, location quiet. And uh, they're not going to do him any favors if they start blabbering his name all over the town. 
All right, under point C then, where we left off, I want to zoom in on what this passage fo- uh, focuses on in verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Matthew is very fond of, of such quotation language. Other New Testament authors do as well, but Matthew in particular. Um, Matthew's burden is to record this event and detail the Old Testament fulfillment And so we're going to spend some time this morning in Isaiah, and we looked already at Isaiah 42. I want to also take a look at Isaiah 61, because I think Isaiah 61 is the easier one to spot. And then with that, I think if we if we learn the skills there, we can go back to Isaiah 42 and we can glean much the same thing. All right. So let's deal with some of these sub points. (sighs) Subpoint so one, just as with the Isaiah 61, 1 through 3 fulfillment, there is a distinction which must be observed between first advent and second advent. Just as with the Isaiah 61, 1 through 3 fulfillment, there is a distinction which must be observed between first advent and second advent. And why do we need to maintain this distinction? Because here in the church, as church age believers, we are commanded to rightly divide the word of truth. That is a scripture that is presented to church age saints uh, as per the New Testament. And it's vital for us to recognize that as we rightly divide, we are in the unique position between first advent and second advent. We can look back, see that fulfilled literally. We can look forward and anticipate that that also will be fulfilled literally. We are in the only age that can claim that because after the millennium, of course, they're looking back at both advents. See, in the Old Testament, they were looking forward to both. In the millennium, they're looking back at both. But we are in the middle, looking back at first advent, looking forward to second advent. So join me in Isaiah 61. Go ahead and actually turn to two places. First, find Luke 4 and hold your finger there at Luke 4. Then um, specifically it's Luke 4 and verse 17. And then once you got your finger at Luke 4:17, turn back to Isaiah 61. Can you handle that this morning? Am I the only one that's impaired? Thought impaired? All right, Isaiah 61. And if you don't want to use a finger, you can use a pen or a pencil or a bubblegum wrapper or one of these New Year's Eve whistles. There we go. Isaiah 61, written 700 years before Christ. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And it goes on. Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins and so forth. All the promises of restoration in the millennial kingdom. Now, this is the easier one to deal with because it's 
primarily sequential. In other words, we can draw a line in the sand uh, partway through verse 2, and we can say, all right, before that, we're looking at first advent, and after that line, we're looking at second advent. And in particular, this uh, passage divides out very nicely in nice, even categories. And I want to be able to glean the principles here where the division is simple, uh, and, and then learn those lessons and then take it back into Isaiah 42 where the division is not quite so simple, where there's a considerable amount of back and forth, a blending, if you will, of first advent, second advent, first advent, second advent throughout an entire context. Okay. Now, if you, you can rescue your finger now by turning over to Luke 4, and you will see the identical terms, but it's interesting where it stops. In Luke 4:17, the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. And then he cites it. But you'll notice, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And that's where the citation stops. And you'll notice that's in the midst of verse 2 of Isaiah 61. Not only in the midst of verse 2, but really only a third of the way through verse 2. If you can break verse 2 down into three parts, a 2a, a 2b, and a 2c, then it draws the line after 2a. And it leaves 2b and 2c yet future, along with verse 3 yet future, not to say, and the rest of the chapter, really, 4 through 11, is also millennial. So um, when we look at Luke 4 here, we see where it stops. He read one verse and a third of a second verse. He read a verse and a third, and he stopped. He closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now we understand why he stopped. Because he could not have claimed that those second advent passages were fulfilled today. He knew and understood that those were yet future, that that was going to await his coming in glory more and conquering more than his coming in humility. So... The, uh, the anointing, the preaching of the gospel, the encouragement to the poor and all the rest of that, that's super in a first advent context. But that's where he had to stop. Okay, so we could do the same thing now with Isaiah 42. And we're going to recognize something here. So let's go back to Isaiah 42 and, and uh, go through it and see if we can pinpoint the first advent and second advent uh, applications. And if this doesn't sink in, then I've got a I've got a backup plan, the emergency backup plan. We can go somewhere else and try it again. <clears throat> Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. All right, that's universal. That's not limited to first advent. Although in the first advent, the heavens opened and God the Father said, "Behold, my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased." The the, the uh, proclamation of the baptism at the River Jordan pinpointed Jesus Christ as the Isaiah 42 servant uh, and chosen one. But that's not unique to First Advent. He, the Father will still be delighting in him at Second Advent. The Father was delighting in him in eternity past. Proverbs 8 tells us the Father delighted in him at creation. So uh, that's that's eternal, not necessarily limited to First Advent. Put my spirit upon him. 
That, of course, happened. First Advent, the Holy Spirit descended as a dove at the River Jordan, part of his anointing, part of his public uh, revelation. The Father, we read about the revelation of Jesus Christ and, and because it's the 66th book in our Bible, and that's all yet future, but let's stop to consider that it's the second revelation of Jesus Christ because the first time came uh, First Advent. Okay. He will bring forth justice to the nations or the Gentiles. You've got to decide how you're going to render that, nations or Gentiles. If you're speaking politically, geopolitically, you might want to render it nations. If you're speaking racially or just in terms of the human race, you might call it Gentiles. Verse 2, he will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street. You think that's first advent or second advent? Any thoughts? First advent, actually, there's a lot of shouting in second advent. There's a lot of conquering. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of proclaiming. Remember, it's a sharp two-edged sword that proceeds out of his mouth. There's a lot of uh, shouting and verbal activity in the millennium. Uh, but think about Isaiah 53 as the lamb before its shearers is silent. Think about how he endured the suffering, despised the shame, and uh, counted it but rubbish. How it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. All right, so I think this not crying out or raising his voice or make his voice heard in the street is very much in a first advent uh, atmosphere. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. That uh, Most commentators push that into the second advent fulfillment, but I find it interesting. Uh, or I'm sorry, I got it backwards. A lot of commentators try to make that a first advent passage. And I think it's more, um, it's more appropriate to make that a second advent passage. In other words, <clears throat> when he arrives after seven years of tribulation have pretty much left everybody beat up <clears throat> with bruised reeds and dimly burning wicks. The Gentile nations and Israel are all devastated in the consequences of, of hell on earth, of the tribulation unleashed. And yet he has the tenderness to not break them, to not extinguish them, <clears throat> and to uh, establish justice for them in the beginning of the kingdom. Verse 4, he will not be disheartened or crushed, until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. And now, it's not my purpose to try to teach Isaiah 42. I would love to teach Isaiah someday. And my dream, if I live to be 110, is to teach Isaiah verse by verse, probably, <clears throat> from the Hebrew. It's just a beautiful book. But verse 4, you think that's first advent or second advent there? Being disheartened and crushed. That's the cross, actually. I mean, the, the fact that he was crushed, he was bruised for our iniquities, he was crushed. The Genesis 3 passage says the serpent will crush his heel, but he will crush his foot. Uh, he will crush his head. And so you start to realize that, wait a minute, he has established justice in the earth. They're looking at the, the provision of salvation. The offer of redemption is, is the ultimate justice upon the earth because that's what allows for humanity to be justified. For humanity to become saved and to receive God's righteousness for justice to be upon the earth. Don't think of establishing justice in the earth as some geopolitical thing. This is God's justice, God's righteousness being imparted to man on the basis of grace through faith. And that's made possible by virtue of him being disheartened and crushed. And then on the basis of that, 
we can anticipate second advent where coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. The, the uttermost ends of the earth, kings and Gentiles will, will be making the trip to Jerusalem so they can learn the word of God directly from Jesus Christ, the son of David. So verses one through four, we can go on this. This entire chapter is a, is a beautiful chapter, uh, but the, the blend in first advent, and second advent is so thorough here it's not as easy to spot as it is in, in in chapter 61 for example where you can just draw a line after 2a and leave 2b and 2c and verse 3 down below it you can draw a single line to demar to uh, mark out the uh, the two advents it's not as cut and dry here or elsewhere now let's stop to consider something as far as this goes what part of this passage is Jesus Christ fulfilling when he heals a bunch of Gentiles? When he flees from the disbelieving Jews, leaves Capernaum, goes wherever he goes, and he heals a bunch of Gentiles who recognize him as being the Christ. Is that a total 100% fulfillment? Not at all, and we'll see why. This is, but Matthew claims it to be a fulfillment. So under point two now, the Lord's first advent ministry to the Gentiles was rather limited and anticipated his future second advent fulfillment of this. The Lord's first advent ministry to the Gentiles was rather limited and anticipated his future second advent fulfillment of this. So it, is it a fulfillment? Yes, it's a fulfillment. Matthew says it's a fulfillment. The Holy Spirit inspired it, said it's a fulfillment. But we look at it and say, all right, it's a fulfillment, but it's not a total fulfillment. There is something greater yet to happen. Isaiah 42 will come through more thoroughly, more completely, and it will do so at the second advent. Not here. Okay? Because when you go back to the text that Matthew was quoting, you recognize that much of that does uh, become deferred until the second coming. Now, also bear in mind, we know all these things because of where we are in the church. Matthew wasn't there yet. <laughs> Matthew wasn't there yet. When Matthew was the tax collector, was following Jesus and the other disciples and these Gentiles start coming and these miracles start happening and Gentiles start hoping, all of a sudden it pops into Matthew's mind that this is Isaiah 42. The Gentiles are hoping in him. The coastlands are waiting expectantly for his law. And he's right. This is a fulfillment of Matthew 40, of Isaiah 42. But there's much more yet to come, and that will come in the second advent. So we have more information than was available to Matthew at the point that he was experiencing this, and even at the point when he was writing this. See, because he wasn't writing this during the life of Christ. He was writing this during the church age years later. I think sometimes people lose track of that also. All right. Is that sinking in? Are you seeing how the Isaiah passages have first advent and second advent shadings and so forth? Okay. Uh, I guess the one other one I want to deal with that's similar to this is the, uh, is the, the Joel prophecy of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the coming of, of prophecy. Okay. So one, if I'm allowed one side trip, Joel chapter 2. <laughs> I got to hear uh, 
an old Dallas professor last March out in the Schaefer Conference, and it was uh, Merrill, Dr. Eugene Merrill, great scholar and wonderful teacher and author of many books in my library. And he would be, he'd get rolling in a message, and then he wanted to stop, so he'd, he'd do something like this. He'd say, um, may I have permission for a side trip? Yes, you may. Go right ahead. Okay, thank you. And he gave himself permission for the side trip and went on into whatever it was. And so he always asked permission first and then he granted the permission and then he went off on his rabbit trail. <coughs> All right, in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, it's, it's well known. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. All right. Now, this passage is cited by Peter in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And he says, this is fulfilling what, the, what Joel the prophet was talking about. Okay. So hold your finger there at Joel 2 and join me in Acts 2. You guys didn't know you were going to use your finger so much today, did you? Acts 2. Day of Pentecost, everybody's speaking in tongues and uh, giving the gospel to Jewish uh, individuals here from all sorts of regions. And uh, these ignorant, uneducated Galileans all of a sudden become fluent linguists in these foreign languages in order to proclaim the uh, glories of Jesus Christ in all these other languages. And uh, they're accused of being drunk here. <laughs> And uh, Peter says, no, we're not drunk. In verse 15, these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. I'm not sure what time they typically get drunk, but it's not the third hour of the day. Okay. That always strikes me every time I read that. We're not drunk. It's only nine o'clock. Um, but then he goes on to say, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. It shall be in the last days. And, and he quotes verses 28 and 29 of Joel 2. But he also goes on and he quotes in verses 19 and 20, grant wonders in the sky above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire, vapor, smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. All right. So even when Peter says, look, this is Joel 2 being fulfilled, Peter himself admits there's more to come. The, 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 total finished fulfillment of this is still waiting second advent you see how that works pentecost which started the church did not completely wrap up what joel 2 was talking about in fact he didn't even really start to do any of that it was similar because it was a whole it was an outpouring of the holy spirit and that there was spiritual giftedness that was then manifest after that but that's about as far as that similarity goes and yet Peter was able to say, rightly, this fulfills what Joel was saying. It's an outpouring of the Spirit, and it's a manifestation of gifts. Okay, so Pentecost didn't totally fulfill Joel 2. Joel 2 will be fulfilled at the second advent of Jesus Christ. Because it has to be after these things. You still have your finger in Joel 2? It will come about after this. Well, after what? Look what precedes that here in Joel 2. The whole world is waging war against Israel. And you've got... Fire consuming before them, and you've got plunder, and you've got anguish, and you've got the heavens quaking, and the earth quaking, and the heavens trembling, and sun and moon go dark, and this is, this is tribulational wrath. 
So it should be obvious that when it says in verse 28, it will come about after this, that I'll pour out my spirit on all mankind, that something, this can't be a church age passage. But this is following the tribulations, following the second advent. All right? And find me a verse there in verse 2 that says, speaking in tongues, that I will pour out my Holy Spirit on all mankind and, and they'll speak in tongues. There's no tongues in, Act, in, in Joel 2. Show me in Acts 2, at Pentecost, when the church receives the Holy Spirit, show me prophecy. There's no prophecy in Acts 2. All right? Joel 2 talks about prophecy in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2 talks about tongues with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Also, to me, the biggest tip-off is in verse 28 when he says, All mankind. I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Well, guess what, folks? On the day of Pentecost, it wasn't all mankind that received the Holy Spirit. It was only the church. All the unbelievers just continued on being unbelievers without the Holy Spirit. But the church received the Holy Spirit. This, though, will happen after the millennium begins when all the unbelievers are gone. Because at the end of the tribulation, every unbeliever, Jew and Gentile alike, if they're lost, if they are unregenerate, they are thrown into hell. Millennium will begin with 100% believers. And so when the outpouring of the Holy Spirit comes, guess what? All mankind. All mankind. All right. Well, this, uh, this is what Matthew was getting at. Matthew was really burdened by Old Testament fulfillment, recognizing that here are Gentiles embracing Christ and, at least in some way, fulfilling Isaiah 42 that the Gentiles truly do hope in him. The coastlands are waiting, anticipating, waiting expectantly for his law. All right, we can turn over to Mark now for Mark's account, Mark 3. Point 3, Mark 3, Mark's account. Mark does not bring into view the Old Testament fulfillment. His burden was something else. His burden was the... Uh, the Gentiles on the scene, and the demons that were on the scene. If you stop to think about it, we've already encountered several demons, and there'll be many, many more throughout the Life of Christ series. And we've encountered several demons in interesting places, including synagogues. <laughs> right? We've encountered demons in dwelling Jews. And uh, so... All likelihood, unregenerate Jewish believers, um, in in whatever else is the case there. All right. Somebody asked if you know do the Old Testament saints have the same protection against demon possession that Church Age saints do, because they don't have the universal indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And you know, in terms of the the passage that says that the the intruder can't intrude unless he binds the strong man first, that the Holy Spirit will never be bound by a demon. So. That, you know, we, we have a protection. We're immunized against demonic possession by virtue of the Holy Spirit in us. But the, the same proof text that you, and I believe that totally. I believe that no believer can be demon-possessed. But the same proof text that in my mind makes it without dispute does not apply to Old Testament believers. And so that becomes uh, an interesting study as well when you get into more advanced demonology. But Mark, uh, but if, if all of these demons are popping up in Jewish contexts in synagogues and Jerusalem and other places where the audience is primarily Gen, uh, Jewish, stop to consider how many demons would you anticipate in a Gentile context? 
Because at least in the Jewish context, even though they're legalistic to the core and, and everything else going wrong, they're still God's chosen people. They still have a hedge of protection. They still have some kind of salt and light benefit to their, to their nation, to their cities and so forth, unless they've totally polluted the land to that extent. But the Gentiles don't even have that. Gentiles don't have the hedge of protection in terms of being God's chosen race or the uh, salt and light benefit of being the stewards of God's word. The Gentiles are simply without, uh, you know, without God in this world and, and uh, their lost estate is pretty, uh, is pretty grim. So it's not surprising that here in a Gentile context, yeah, there's all kinds of demons out here. And Mark, Mark is pretty vivid in describing that. So let's read through it. Mark 3, 7 through 12. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, a great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. Opposition immediately preceded that in verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. I think that's the only documented instance of Pharisees cooperating with Herodians. Pharisees hated Herodians. The Pharisees absolutely hated Herod. Herod wasn't legitimate. Herod was an Idumean. He was not. He was Edomite. He wasn't even Jewish. He was the puppet that the Romans put on the throne. He was there because he was friends with uh, Augustus, and and uh, prior to that, he was friends with Mark Antony. Okay, good to have friends. <laughs> You know, especially that well-connected. And, of course, Cleopatra hated him, wanted him dead. But Mark Antony spoke up for him. And then even after Anthony and Cleopatra died, uh, he managed to convince Augustus that he was really loyal for Augustus the whole time. So, you know, you don't want to be on the wrong side of a civil war because when they lose, then you tend to face consequences afterwards. Herod managed to win even though he was playing both sides during the Augustus and and, uh, Anthony civil war. But he was a puppet of the Romans. The Romans put him on the throne. He uh, divorced his Gentile wife so he could marry a Jewish princess and act like he owned the place. He didn't belong there. And uh, the Pharisees in particular were outspoken in their opposition to Herod and to all the Herodians. And uh, here they're working together. Why? Because they have a common hatred for Jesus Christ. I find it remarkable, these lawsuits against prayer in school. Who's putting up these lawsuits against prayer in school? This latest one was in, that, in the Houston area schools, and it went to the Texas Supreme Court. You know who the primary litigants were? In it? it was uh, a Roman Catholic, a Mormon, and a Buddhist. Why are they cooperating? What do they have in common? All right. Well, here, what they have in common is a hatred for biblical Christianity in terms of the person of Jesus Christ. Now, Mark also terms this event as a withdrawal in verse 7. Just like Matthew, he recognized that this was an escape. This was a a withdrawal. They were leaving with cause. I didn't read the whole thing, did I? Stop. Where did I go? Oh, that's right. I got distracted with Herodians in verse 6. Verse 7, Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples. And and it doesn't say which sea, by the way. It's thought to be the lake of... Uh, the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Gennesaret, but it could even have been the Mediterranean Sea. In other words, he went to the coastal regions like we know he does at least one other time. But he withdrew to the sea with his disciples and a great multitude from Galilee followed. Okay, I read through all that. Um, 
Jerusalem, Edomia, uh, I read through all that, Tyre and Sidon. Those are all Gentiles. Canaanites of all things. A great number of people heard of him. What he was doing and he came, and came to him. Then verse 9, And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd so that they would not crowd him. In other words, crowd control. If, they, if they're pressing in on him too much and it gets overwhelming, bad things could happen. Not the least of which is the you know, a possible assassination attempt in the distraction in the crowds, see. And uh, they'd already done it one other occasion where he got in a boat and told Peter to put out from shore a little distance. See, if you get in a boat and you get six feet from shore, you can still at least be heard as you teach your Bible class and they can crowd as much as they want on the shore, but they're not going to be wading out in the water and trying to get into the boat with you. And they're making those same preparations here. That a boat would be prepared, stand ready. Might not be needed, but in case it is needed, it better be ready. So they would not crowd him, for he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. And could quite easily get mobbed, could quite easily get crushed, could quite easily, intentionally or otherwise. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. All right. Now, we'll do a lot of work on that coming up here. So point A, Mark's account. Mark also terms this event as a withdrawal. Secondly, he specifies the Gentile crowds that are present. He specifies the Gentile crowds. Matthew only referenced Gentiles in terms of the Isaiah fulfillment. And the Isaiah passage mentioned the nations. But Mark specifically references which Gentiles? The Edomians, people from Tyre and Sidon. <clears throat> Mark, in his gospel, Matthew emphasizes kingship. Mark emphasizes servanthood. Not to be surprising here, but Mark is going to be the gospel account that emphasizes the servant aspect of the Lord's ministry. Mark also specifies how difficult it was becoming to arrange the logistical assistance for Jesus' travels and security considerations. Having this boat stand ready was a security issue, but also a transportation issue. Mark also specifies how difficult it was becoming. We've previously seen where uh, it was getting to the point where he couldn't enter into a city publicly. He had to, he had to stay in unpopulated areas. The end of chapter 1 gives us a clue in that regard. Mark 1.45 He went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas and they were coming to him from everywhere. See, it's Mark. It's servant-minded Mark that records for us little details like this. Say, you know, you know that, that Mary and Martha story there. If Mark was a girl, he'd have been a... He'd have been a Martha. <laughs> He'd have been so wrapped up with the details and the planning and the, and the cooking and what's needed here and what's needed there. He probably would have grumbled about, uh, you know, Mary's just sitting there not pulling her weight. She's listening to Bible class. She should be here in the kitchen washing dishes or doing something. I think Mark is the, uh, the male equivalent of, of Martha there. But the arrangement with the boat and the uh, having it standing by, does that mean he needed it? No, but it means he might have. 
And so to prepare for that contingency, well, let's make one available in case it's needed. And these are the kind of things that, uh, for instance, uh, deacons do a lot and other people do a lot to help keep the, keep the administrative things going and the, the, the lights on and bills paid and things like that. Putting ads in the paper for nursery and stuff like that, see. All right, point D. Mark records how many of the healings were actually demonic expulsions. Mark records how many of the dealings... I should change that to that. Mark records that many of the healings were actually demonic expulsions. Now, not every sickness is by virtue of a demon. A lot of sickness is just because we have fallen bodies in a fallen world. But, at least in some instances, as here, the, the healings are not healings necessarily. They are simply demonic expulsions. And as a consequence of the demon being kicked out, the body heals. Because it wasn't really sick. It wasn't a sickness afflicting the body. It was a demon afflicting the body. And so we talk about it as being a, a healing, when in reality it's a demon expulsion, that then the result of that demon being gone is, uh, is uh, that the body heals. Does that make sense? All right. I'm due for another dose at 11 o'clock. I'm glad the class will end at 11 o'clock. I can only imagine how spacey it's going to be about 11.15. All right. And we have these demons that are mentioned here. The, uh, I already highlighted how uh, we're finding them in, in Jewish context, but how much more so in a Gentile context. There will be more... Legion, by the way, is coming up, and he's across the sea, way over there in the Gadarene region, um, around uh, you know a herd of swine and, and so forth. That's not a Jewish context. What, what Jew would be keeping a herd, a herd of swine anyway, right? It's an unclean animal. They, they wouldn't eat it. What would they do with it? Okay, that's a Gentile context. And there's a, a man with, named Legion who has, if it's a Roman legion, could have up to 6,000 demons inside of him. All right? don't know that he had that many, but he had lots of them. Nowadays, we probably just call them scads, right? Say, call me scads for we are many. No, back then they said, call me legion. All right. Point uh, E, the demons were also admonished to keep his identity quiet. The demons were also admonished to keep his identity quiet. Same as the Gentiles. He earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. Now, it's legitimate to question in verse 12 the object of them, the pronoun them. He earnestly warned them. And some take it to be the Gentiles, in agreement with Matthew, the Gentiles, uh, having had the demons expelled, then Jesus was telling them, in other words, he's referring to the Gentiles that have just been healed. But... The pronoun them actually more naturally goes back to the nearest um, referent and the nearest referent being unclean spirits. Not only are they the nearest referent, but they also verbally speak to him. You are the son of God. And since he was being addressed by the demons, not the Gentiles, since he was uh, being uh, addressed by the unclean spirits, it's natural, more natural to take the them in verse 12 to be the unclean spirits and not the people. Okay, But 
I guess linguistically you could make a case for the people. I just don't think it's a natural, it's a natural sentence structure to do that. Why? And I think the only reason people do that is because they ask, well, why would he be commanding demons to be quiet? Okay. Why would he be commanding demons to be quiet? Um, why would he command Gentiles to be quiet? Why would he not be worthy of praise? At, at some point, how could they not cry out? Think about uh, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem and the children are singing Hosanna and glory to God in the highest and proclaiming the son of David has come and so forth. And the disciples said, you know, make these kids shut up. Right? Can't you quiet these kids down, these noisy kids? All right? And Jesus, what did Jesus say? He said, you know what? He said, well, he said something about the kids. Then he said, even if we did shut them up, the stones would cry out. Okay? There's a certain glory that God has that demands that worship and where they can't keep silent. You think about those angels in heaven before his throne. What do they do all day long? Isaiah chapter 6. They cover their face with their wings and cry, holy, holy, holy. Okay? There is an aspect of the, of the glory of God that in the angelic presence demands that to be cried out. And so these demons can't help themselves. They are coming face to face here with the Son of God. He has to command them. Otherwise, I mean, why are they shouting out, you are the Son of God? A lot of commentators point out that these demons themselves are probably, you know, thousands of years old and were around in the beginning and they remember him in his pre-incarnate glory. I, I don't dispute that, that the demons are as old as they are and they would have remembered him prior to that. But uh, I, I think there's more to it than, than that. I think it's the presence of that glory that even though it was veiled in the flesh, even though privileges were set aside and that he emptied himself, still it was present among them. Something greater than the temple is here. And something greater than the Shekinah glory that ever filled Solomon's temple is here. And these demons are reacting to that, to its urgency, to its, to its majesty. And so he has to warn them not to tell who he was. Now, there is a um, passage in Timothy that has been running through my head here for a week. 1 Timothy 3.16, and I haven't done anything with it. Don't you hate that? It's running through your head and you don't really pursue it. You just let it sit there. So let's look at it. 1 Timothy 3.16. Just because it's been rattling around in, in my Sudafed brain. And I thought, you know, there's, a, there's an aspect of this that we're seeing unfold in this particular episode in the life of Christ. I think it's typical of his whole life. This is the life of Christ in one verse. Paul tells Timothy, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how you want, one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So 1 Timothy is a church manual for how a local church should operate. Not surprising, we'll be there Sunday morning as we develop ecclesiology. But by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Mystery doctrine, of course, pertains to church age information, material that we have available to us by virtue of the church unfolding and this information being revealed. And this is actually a psalm. You thought all the psalms were in the book of Psalms? Not so. There's psalms outside of Psalms, including this one. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, 
seen by angels. I, I believe that refers to not only the elect angels, but the fallen angels as well. Demons, evil spirits, every spiritual being that either supported him or attacked him was a, was a full observer of his life and ministry. Proclaimed above uh, among the nations or Gentiles, just like we're dealing with in Matthew 12 and Mark 3. His ministry was not exclusively to Israel, even though at times he limited himself to Israel. When he sent out his disciples, he forbid them to go to Gentiles and their first training ministry was to Israel first. Nevertheless, there was a proclamation among the nations. We saw the Samaritan woman. Now we're seeing these Gentiles. There will be more. There will be a centurion at the cross who testifies that truly this is the Son of God. Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And there we have it. The mystery of godliness is Jesus Christ. The life he lived, the pattern that was set for us. You want to be godly? Jesus Christ is your example. Set, follow the example he set. The mystery of godliness is our identity with Jesus Christ. Anyway, that's a passage been rolling around in my head here lately. But seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, just puts me back into this concept here in Mark 3 where we have these demons being cast out. And everything in Christ's life is being monitored not only in the, by the human realm, but in the angelic realm as well. So he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. And it may be even that this ban, this prohibition, was uh, against these evil spirits actually tipping off other evil spirits where he could be found. I mean, if you want to hide from a human being, how do you do that? Well, you, you leave the area, you go somewhere, you don't tell people where you're going, you, you disappear, you hide. Okay, you can hide from human beings, but how do you hide from fallen angels? How do you hide from demons? How do you hide from evil spirits? Okay, particularly when you show up and they start crying out, the Son of God, the Son of God, the Son of God. Well, he puts them under a ban. He puts them under uh, an oath of silence here, earnestly warning them not to tell who he was. I, I think it's likely that the uh, anticipated uh, individuals that they would go spill the beans to, that they would be other demons, other evil spirits, other, uh, or their masters, the fallen angels, that uh, are the kings of the demons. All right? Anyway, they are admonished to keep quiet. Luke's account. Let me get through this if it kills me, because we're almost to the end of the hour, but I'm almost out of breath, and we're almost out of notes, so let's just wrap up Luke's account. Luke's is a stage setting. Let's go over to Luke chapter 6. Now, Luke has the order just a little bit different. And that's fine. We're okay with that. Because if you look at Luke chapter 6, this episode follows the withered hand, just like it does in Matthew, just like it does in Mark. However, the withered hand ends at verse 11, where they were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do for Jesus. And then... It skips the, uh, the the choosing of the twelve. Then follows in twelve through sixteen, and then we have our passage in verses seventeen through uh, nineteen. You see what I'm talking about there? That the withered hand ends in verse eleven, and the healing of the multitudes doesn't start till verse seventeen. And in the middle there, we have that passage twelve through sixteen, which is the selection of the twelve apostles. All right. 
And so that's a little bit of a different order. Luke's is, is a little different than what you have in Matthew and in Mark. And you will spot that in your Harmony of the Gospels. When you look down there at event 15, multitudes healed. And event 16, 12 apostles selected. And you can see that everything follows in a sequence there. From plucked grain to withered hand to multitudes healed. For Matthew and Mark. And then with the 12 apostles selected, it, it follows in Mark. Uh, Luke had it the other way around. Luke had withered hand, 12 apostles, then the multitudes healed. And so you kind of spot that in the chart. Because in, in the Luke column, you go from chapter 6, verses 6 through 11, to chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. Then you back up to Luke 6, verses 12 through 16. And then you jump ahead to Luke 6, verses 20 through 49 with the with the Sermon on the Mount. All right. But now notice, and, and whether or not it, it came after he picked out his 12 or it came before he picked out his 12, I think the order is better in Mark than it is in Matthew. And so too did the, did the author of this Harmony of the Gospels. Uh, he thought that Mark's order was better than Luke's order. It doesn't matter. Whether it happened before he picked the 12 or after he picked the 12, it still is setting the stage for Sermon on the Mount. And that's what Luke stresses. In Luke's account, the setting of Luke is a stage setting for the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, verses 17 through 19 is setting the table for verses 20 through 49. Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place, and there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of all their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the people were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. And our sub-point B, the conditions are similar to Mark's record. The conditions are similar to Mark's record in three ways. Primarily a Gentile audience. I think Mark emphasized the Gentiles more than Luke. Luke at least recognized that there were a large crowd of his disciples. But then the rest of this are the strangers. A throng from Judea and Jerusalem. And the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon. And they came not because they were disciples. They came to be healed. Verse 18. They come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. So primarily a Gentile audience. Healings and demon expulsions are mentioned by Luke. Um, somebody asked, is an unclean spirit the same as an evil spirit or a wicked spirit? It is different terminology. I believe they are used rather interchangeably. I would not want to write a book and say that uh, you know, a wicked spirit is one flavor of demon and an unclean spirit is an entirely different flavor of demon. Some people have really gone to extents to where they have broken down even different races among the, the demons and so forth. And I believe there's a rank structure in terms of rulers and authorities, principalities and powers. There is a rank structure. Uh, I don't think it's fair to say that we can divide them up in race like we think of humanity with different races. If you've got angel races in your mind like human races right like white black hispanic what have you um you got a fatal flaw there because angels don't propagate in lineage descent like human beings do 
think it's better instead of thinking of angelic races or types of angels, it's more appropriate to think of ranks, archangels and so forth, as ranks rather than types. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's also unclean spirit in Mark 3.11 as well as the unclean spirit, akatharos, unclean, in, uh, in Luke 6. And then the overcrowding circumstances in verse 19. Now, uh, Luke doesn't record the, the boat that was prepared and the other planning that went into it. Uh, a servant has that kind of detail in mind, but Luke um, is uh, stressing the people and his gospel highlights the humanity of Jesus Christ. The people were trying to touch him. Why? For power was coming from him. It'll get to that point with the apostles, too. They'll, they want to touch part of their garment, or they want Peter's shadow to cross them while they're laying there, and he's walking past. And they really developed all these superstitions that if they just laid there by the side of the road and Peter walked by, if his shadow fell across them, then, you know, they could be healed. Things like that. The overcrowding circumstances. You know, we get excited about throngs of people, and that's cultural. We get to this point where we're like Laodicea. We think, well, we must be a prosperous church because more and more people keep coming. Well, wait a minute. You've got to stop to realize what's the motivation for them coming. Is the motive, are they coming to be fed the Word of God? Are they coming to be edified in the faith? Then we can praise the Lord and celebrate. But if they're coming because of a fad or they're coming because of a, a personality cult with a person or they're coming for whatever other reason... You've got to stop to realize that. And the false reasons will always outnumber the right reasons as far as who builds the bigger crowd. All right? I guess I'll close with that. We'll move on to the 12 apostles selected. And I'll even give you a handout. You won't need it till next week, but you may want to refer to it during the week. So I'll give you a handout before, uh, before you leave. You can come get one and you'll be able to refer to that next week's class. If you think you're going to lose it between now and next week, then uh, take one anyway and I'll have more copies ready to go for next week. Father, thank you for your word, for the truth of your word, for your precious promises. Thank you for getting us through this hour. We look forward to you, all your blessings in our lives day by day. And on this day, Father, we thank you for the new home. We thank you for the, the movers that are moving, for strong, healthy men that are lifting big, heavy pieces of furniture. And I thank you that... Uh, that You've provided for them to do that. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.